0: All right. Let's jump back into the Gospel of Mark. Thank you choir for that special. I invite you to take with me to go and back to the Gospel of Mark, a passage that we've been in or a book we've been in for several weeks now. We'll be in Mark chapter 6 this morning beginning in verse 45. The title of today's message is The Lord of the Storm. And here we will see the perfect savior for life storms. And I want to begin reading in verse 45 and just jump in as quickly and immediately as I know how. There is just so much in these verses for which we can embrace with our own lives, and I trust it'll be truly the sanctifying power of God's Word that's at play even at the beginning of this message as we simply read God's Word. There's power in just the written and read Word of God. We'll pick up our reading beginning in verse 45 of Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. It says, and straightway, he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and go to the other side before unto Bethsaida, while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And he saw them, the disciples, toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed them by. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and said unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them, into the ship, and the wind ceased. And they were sore amazed in themselves, beyond measure, and wondered, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened." we find in this account from the earthly ministry of our Lord, is a profound truth. Jesus is Lord over the storms of life. Now, Not one of us in this room today is exempt from these storms. None of us is allowed clear sailing in our lives. There is appointed for each of us stormy seas that we must sail through. And these storms are real, and waves are contrary And this is a reality. Some of you will face financial thunderstorms. Some will face family tempests, or marital monsoons, or relational squalls, or health hurricanes. Some will approach the storm of death. Of course, the greatest storm is the great storm that awaits all of us in the last day, the fury of the final judgment will be unleashed with a vengeance against all sinners. It is a looming storm of catastrophic proportions that will howl throughout the ages to come. All that is to say a profound truth, one I trust you realize even as you sang today. Everybody here needs a savior in their storm. You need one who is mighty to stave through the storms of this life and through the storms that will come in eternity as well. We all need one who will come to deliver us. None of us is exempt from the storms of this present life or the life to come. We learn in this account from Mark 6 that there is only one true Savior who is able to rescue his disciples, and that is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Man's own efforts cannot save. Religion cannot save. Good works do not deliver you. Head knowledge will not save you. The storm is too fierce, the waves are too strong, the wind is too powerful, the shore is too distant, you cannot get out of your boat and swim to the shore lest you would drown. There is only one who walks on water to you, there is only one who commands the storm and the angry waves to cease, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby you must be saved. Christ is the perfect Savior. He is the only Savior. All other ground is sinking sand. And so today I want to draw our attention to the Lord of the storm. Jesus is the Lord in the midst of all that life may threaten us, that may speak harm to us. Jesus is the only Savior on that final day. And if you have him on your side and in your boat, he will be your Savior. Now as we explore this text from Mark chapter 6, I want you to see with me how perfect a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ is. And today I want to see several features from this text that I will demonstrate from this text the perfect Lord of the storm. And we'll look at them under headings, the first of which is this. Jesus knows about your storm. How perfect a Savior the Lord is, that he knows and is wise in all things. Here's the first revelation of what a perfect Savior there is. Look what it says. It says in verse 45, and straightway, you could translate that word, and immediately. Now when you've going through the gospel of Mark, you've seen this word often. It's a favorite of Mark's. Mark has, it would seem, two favorite words, immediately and the word and. And he does this because it's almost like every event is on the heels of the other. And that's exactly what's happening here. This event, we are just now reading, preceded what had just happened. What had just happened? Well, what had just happened was the feeding of the 5,000 men. And we have every reason to believe that this is the same day as that feeding. immediately. After performing this great miracle of feeding 5,000 in rapid, staccato fashion, we stepped immediately into the next scene. And what happens on the next scene? Well, Jesus knows exactly what you need on that next scene of life. Underscore what happens next. He constrained his disciples to get into the boat. If your translation does not say constrained, or made them get into that boat. It does not serve you well in this text. Here he says this is a clear indication that they did not want to get into this boat. But Jesus constrained them. He forced them. This was not their natural desire. And the reason he made them get into the boat is basically twofold. Amen. This is immediately at the height of Jesus' earthly popularity. Of all the gospel stories, we stand in this text at the apex of Jesus' human popularity. John's account in John 6 tells us that immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, the people were ready to crown him king. And the disciples' eyes are now like saucers as he saw them feed these 5,000 men and this whole host of crowd, and the whole crowd now is ready to hoist him on their shoulders and crown him king and carry him to a throne. No wonder Jesus now has to constrain them to get into a boat. This is the last thing they want to do. They would much rather stay with this crowd. This is the height of Jesus' earthly popularity. And this, then, is a time of great temptation for his disciples. If Jesus is at the crowning moment of his earthly popularity, then surely this means the disciples who followed him would have power, prestige, and popularity at their fingertips. This is their one shining moment. If there was ever a time to be in the hip pocket of Jesus... This is it. But Jesus, according to his infinite wisdom, makes them get into the boat and go to the other side before unto Bethsaida. That is the town on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus knew exactly what they needed. He knew what steps he must ordain for them to take. And so, with perfect wisdom, contrary to outward perspective, He puts them in a boat and sends them away from the crowd. Listen, if the disciples were Baptist on that day, they would have been starting a building project right now, right? (laughs) I mean, this is their time. Jesus, if you're going to feed people like that, we need a bigger place to meet. And yet, our Lord's wisdom is infinitely greater than man's convention. Jesus sends them on ahead. Reading between the lines, we know that Jesus knew they could not handle this kind of prosperity. They were not ready for this kind of success. If they had remained here, they would have caved into the desires of the people who wanted to establish the kingdom right then. And they would have thus squeezed into the world's mold themselves, and they would have thought of themselves as having great accolades, and they would have missed the bigger picture. So... He pushes them away. In addition, we read, while he, Jesus, sent the people away. Jesus understood how easy it would have been to be deceived into thinking that with large numbers equals success in ministry. And so Jesus not only sends his disciples into a boat to the other side, he sends the crowds away. But this ministry was already successful, not because of his crowds, but because Jesus had been faithful to his Father to do the will of God, to teach the word of God. That's what equals success. And Jesus now sends the crowds away before he also left the disciples, verse 46. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. Jesus operates in all of our lives and in all of our ministries by his perfect wisdom. Conventional wisdom, would have said that they were to stay here with this crowd, establish a meeting place here, maybe feed a couple more thousand people, and you're going to have it made. But Jesus conducts his ministry by a totally and completely different criteria of success. How strange at times are the ways of God to our own understanding. So it is with us. As God directs our steps in life and ministry, Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. All of his plans are perfect for our lives. Though outward circumstances sometimes may indicate that he would lead us in an obvious direction, there are times, by his providence, Jesus chooses to do what is inscrutable to us, that he may be seen glorious. Now this requires great trust and faith on our part. To get into boats and go to other sides when we much rather stay with the crowd. But Jesus knew exactly what they needed. And he knows exactly what you need to do as well. Sometimes people make decisions based upon what limited knowledge they have. From their perspective, that was the best decision that they could make. The only problem is they didn't have all of the facts. When our Lord directs our steps with perfect wisdom, we can rest knowing that while we may not know all the facts, He most certainly does. And in his perfect wisdom and knowledge, he had taken into account all that would precede this. And so it says in verse 47, and when even was come, now I believe, again, this is the same evening of the same day as when he fed the 5,000. So when it finally gets dark outside, this is a full day. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea. Now that is an important distinction apparently for all of the gospel writers to include. Matthew, John, and Mark all record this miracle. Luke does not record this detail, but all the others record the detail that Jesus put them in a boat, and they all, three of them say, and they were now, when it got dark, they were in the middle of the sea. Apparently this is an important detail that gospel writers don't want us to miss. The boat was far away from land is the point. The point is, the boat is now in the deepest part of the sea. In John's account, it says, when they had rowed about three or four miles. If you threw up a map up here, you'd discover that this sea is only about two miles across. Why are they rowing for three or four miles? Well, if you've ever gotten into a boat and it's pushing you around, you're not going to be rowing straight lines, are you? And it tells us in Mark's Gospel that Jesus saw them and they had been laboring with these oars. So they are, if you could say it this way, kind of spinning in circles, stuck in the middle of the water. That's kind of a scary place to be. And the point is that they are the furthest away from human eyes and the shallows of the shore. But did you notice, verse 47, Jesus alone on the land and he saw them. Here's Jesus' perfect knowledge. Remember, this is in the middle of the night, and there is a storm blowing in. It's darker than dark, and yet Jesus, on the mountaintop, in the middle of the darkness, in the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm, saw them. This goes beyond physical sight. There is something divine going on here. Jesus saw it all. He knew it perfectly. In their most difficult hour, none of this escaped the all-seeing gaze of the all-sovereign God. Jesus sees in the dark. Jesus sees what man cannot see. You and I are never alone in any situation. We are under the gaze of an all-seeing God who knows your storm. He sees, he knows, he cares. And so we see the Lord of the storm because none of us, none of us is exempt from storms in life. And you can have confidence that your Jesus knows about your storm. But number two, Jesus is there in your storm. I want you to note with me the perfect timing of our Lord. It was when they were most in danger that Jesus came. Verse 48, about the fourth watch of the night he came. The fourth watch of the night. Well, the night is divided into four watches, not four wristwatches, mind you, but four segments, we could say. There's the time between 6 to 9 p.m. There's the time between 9 p.m. and midnight. There's the time between midnight and 3 a.m. And there's the fourth watch of the night between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And when he's talking, he's saying this is from the time Jesus is saying the fourth watch of the night means somewhere between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And we are led to believe that this is likely the start of the first watch of the night. Now, this would mean He is coming to them in the darkest time of the night. That's why he's making this point. And the disciples have been out in the open sea for about, we could estimate, nine hours. They are definitely tired. They are definitely disoriented. They didn't have lights on the front of their boat to turn on, okay? It would have been easy for them to fall prey to fear. It was the fourth watch of the night. His timing, friend, is always perfect. Jesus waited for the darkest hour of the night, the scariest time that they were in the boat. Jesus waited until the storm was its most fierce, fiercest, when it was the winds were their most contrary, when the disciples were their most tired. This is just like John chapter 11, by the way. You'll remember that Jesus was told in John 11 that his friend, Lazarus, was sick unto death. Do you remember what he did? He waited. And when he finally came to the house, there were more than a few questions because when they finally made it there, Lazarus was no longer sick. He was dead. And then said Martha unto Jesus in John 11, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would never have died. Now she's right, in one sense. She knows that Jesus is powerful enough to heal sick people, but God doesn't work according to our agendas. God is not working according to our timetables. There are times in our lives when God intentionally delays for a greater good in our life. We I can speak for myself, I want everything immediately. I'm not a naturally patient person. You know why? Because I'm a dude, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) But according to the perfect purpose and wisdom of God, his timing is always perfect to pass in our lives. It was at this point that he drew near to him. Let me gather this together for your thinking. He waited into the night was the darkest, He waited until the storm was the strongest. He waited until the disciples were the weakest. And then Jesus came. Listen, Jesus' timing is always perfect. There is no one too weak for him to save. Only people too strong in their own efforts who think they don't need saving. Jesus waits, but he's there. It is when we are weak That Paul says we learn that he is strong. And this is when he comes walking on the water. Because number three, Jesus walks on your storm. And here I want you to see the perfect power of our Lord. Still notice in verse 48, the next words, walking on the sea. This is a rather dramatic entrance, is it not? (laughs) Jesus came walking. This is a note of triumph. It's a note of supreme authority. It's a note of absolute sovereignty. Jesus came omnipotently with power on the stormy seas as a graphic display. He did not come swimming to them. He did not come rowing to them. He came walking to them. Jesus was saying, basically, what is about to go over your head is already under my feet. The word walking is in the present tense, indicating his progress as he moves steadily over the waves, as if he stepped off the shoreline onto the water and just kept coming. And here is the all-powerful Christ. There's no storm, but that it is under his feet. There is no situation, but that it is under his control. Here is your Lord and Master triumphantly planting his feet on the angry waves as they become his stepping stones. The psalmist David wrote of the coming Messiah. And he said, you have him rule over the works of your hands. You have put everything under his feet. That's what we see here. Even the angry waves are under his feet. Paul would say God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. He put all things under subjection under his feet. Listen, it's not just angry waves that are under his feet, it's every circumstance, it's every event, it's every trial. Though you may fear that your head is under the water, I assure you that those waves are under his feet. And so it is with you and me. There is no storm in which you will ever find yourself, but that it is under the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. He draws near to his disciples when they find themselves in the most difficult watch of the night. And he comes walking to them This is an encouragement to us as we find ourselves with the spray of the angry waves in our faces. But I note with you in verse 48, he intended to pass them by. What is going on here? I thought he was walking to them. Jesus Is intended to give the appearance of passing them by that there might be a greater desperation in their hearts to call out to Him. With perfect wisdom and knowledge, our Lord knows that they are not yet completely at the end of themselves. And He gives the appearance of passing them by to create one last note of panic within their soul that they may reach out to him with complete sincerity, knowing this is their only and final hope, the Lord of the storm. He intended to pass them by, we could add, as if to test them. When you thought the rug was finally pulled out, there was yet another one underneath to pull out once more, so that you could know that Jesus gives peace In your storm. And here we see the peace of Christ, the perfect, powerful peace of Christ. As he comes to us in the midst of the storm, walking on the waves, he speaks to us. Notice verse 49. But when they saw him, we must understand at this point they do not recognize him as their master. At this point they only see a form. This is in the midst of the night, remember? This is in the middle of the storm, and they don't have omnipotent eyesight. But they do see a form, and they thought it says it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw it. You imagine the first guy to see the form would thinking, all right, I don't know if they have like in the desert when you've got visions, right, and you think you saw something. I don't know if that happens on the sea in the middle of a storm, but I'm pretty sure I just saw a guy. Did you see him? I saw him. Did you see him? We all saw him. And now the panic meter is rising. Because everybody agrees, we're definitely seeing something. Any skepticism is gone. There's definitely something there. They all, says verse 50, saw him and were terrified. They are like you and I. They are in a state of panic. They are shaken. They are troubled. They are upset. They are frightened. They are violently shaken with fear. They have no hope of making it to the other side, and now to compound those terrors, a ghost is troubling them. (laughs) But then we read this But immediately he spoke to them. And again, notice the word immediately. It's as if in the moment of their sheer terror that he pierces through their fright with words. And our Lord's intent is not to terrify them with words, but to deliver them from terror. He spoke with them to identify himself. He wanted them to say, you you see a form, hear my words, it's me. And what they could not see in the dark, they could recognize with their ears. And they could recognize the voice of their shepherd as he says, take courage. But this is implied that they had become filled with fear. He's saying, be bold, be courageous, it is I. This is the only reason why you can take courage. If it had been anyone else saying, don't worry, don't be afraid, it's me, you'd be like, okay, I'm still scared. <laughs> but it is I, it is me, it is Jesus. I'm not going down. And you won't either. Do not be afraid. Stop being so fearful. This is the Lord of the storm. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And with these commands, Jesus speaks perfect peace into troubled souls. This is a peace that only comes from God. It's a tranquility of the soul based on the fact that he is sovereign over your storm. He walks on the waves to draw near to us. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. I wonder in what ways today we need to receive this peace. I reminded the words of Paul, who while he was imprisoned in adverse circumstances said, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And on the heels of that, The peace of God which passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This peace builds a fortress around your heart. It will not allow the enemy of anxiety nor the foe of worry to enter your heart. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Would you desire perfect peace? then let your steadfastness be upon the greatness and glory of the God who drew near to you in the storm. And friend, finally, Jesus is able to calm your storm. I want you to notice this perfect command. Note verse 451, and he got into the boat. The Greek actually indicates that he got up into the boat. As if to say the boat was lifted up in the angry waves or tilted at an angle. So fierce were the angry waves that the boat was being lifted up and he climbs up into the boat. Kind of an interesting picture there. And he got into the boat, it says, with them. And when he did so, by the way, there is no more secure place in all the world than to have Jesus in the boat with you. (laughs) Safer to be in the angry waves with Christ in your boat than to stand on the shore in the calmest of circumstances without him. The boat will never go down when Christ is in the boat. He got in the boat, and there's Mark's word. He loves that word. It's an immediate word. As soon as his foot hit deck, the wind ceased. Wind doesn't do that. (laughs) Wind dies down. Wind doesn't just stop as if someone shut off a fan. And even if you did shut off a fan, fans don't normally stop like that either, do they? That is no coincidence. Though not stated, we know that surely Jesus commanded whatever he did, whatever he said, it was done in a spectacular way. Without Jesus saying a word, it would imagine. It stopped. I want you to note the far greater miracle, though, is the calmness that occurred inside their hearts. Verse 51, and they were utterly astonished. Literally, these disciples were thrown into continuing astonishment. Only Mark records this response. Matthew and John do not give insight to this response. Mark is saying this miracle blew their minds. At this point, they are utterly astonished that this teacher could calm storms. For, he says, they did not understand about the loaves. What is that referring back to? It's referring back to the feeding of the 5,000. They were so caught up in the hoopla of what was happening... It had not fully and completely dawned on their shallow little minds the absolute sufficiency and total sovereignty of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is something they grew into. By the way, we all start in kindergarten in the faith. It is over time, the experiences of life and applying that truth that we come to know by personal experience the infinite sufficiency and absolute sovereignty of Christ. Did they know Christ was their Lord factually? Yes. Did they believe it? Yes. Did they have a full understanding yet? Not yet, but they'll learn. The text says their hearts were hardened. This is not a hardening in reprobation, but a hardening in the sense that they were spiritually still dull. They were slow to grasp the obvious significance of things. As you continue to read the stories of the disciples, you come to discover there are many other things that we read back into the text and we say, how can they be so dull? How did they not see this? But I caution you against so thinking. Because in your life, I'm sure you could say, I can't believe I used to think that way. I can't believe I used to say that. The worst thing for a pastor is manuscripting a sermon like I do and then going back and looking at a sermon you preached five years ago and say, I can't believe I said that. I don't want any of us today to be like this, though. No matter what words I choose at this point, no matter if I raise or lower my voice, no matter how commanding my sentence is, I cannot break through to your heart apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, taking these words and delivering them down into the depths of your soul. It matters not, really, necessarily what hymn we sing as we close It matters not what outline I used as I preached. It matters not how creative I was with my speech. Ultimately, it is a matter of God himself instilling into your heart at this very moment truth. And all I can be is a mouthpiece for it. Jesus walks on water. He has authority over all the storms of your life. He draws near to you in the hours of your greatest need. All the ramifications of this can only be received into your heart by a divinely enabled truth and faith. May God enable you to see what the disciples at this moment struggled to see. May the Lord allow you to hear what was so hard for them to grasp. Jesus is the Lord of every situation. Jesus is the Lord of every circumstance you will ever find yourself in. He is the Lord of the storm. I want to say two things in closing. Number one, some of you here today find yourselves in temporal storms of life. You find yourself in the midst of life with difficulty around you. You are in the midst of the sea of darkness. It may be the winds of finance It may be the thunderstorms of the home. It may be the difficulties of children or work or health or whatever it is, and whatever size it is, big or small, there's only one who will come walking on the water to you, to deliver you with peace. You can't swim out of it, you can't jump onto another ship. Every ship that doesn't have Jesus on it is going down. The Savior walks on water to you. Number two, others of you face a far greater storm. There is a far greater storm than financial, family, health, or professional storms. Those storms in this life are like wading into a thimble of water compared to the great storm that is to come. Jesus illustrated it this way in Matthew 7. Therefore... Whoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man who builds his house upon a rock, and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. You and I have met some of these people that are rock dwellers. You go into it would be an encouragement to them in a hospital room, and you think, "This is a huge storm." And you find them at perfect peace. Because they're rock dwellers. And everyone that heareth these things of mine and doeth them not, however, shall be likened to a foolish man which builds his house upon the sand. And the rain descends and the floods come and the winds blow and beat upon the house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. There is a gathering storm out there that will break in the last day. And there is only one who is a safe rock to build your house upon. (coughs) Would you come to Jesus today? Would you say, Lord, I can't save myself, I can't deliver myself from angry waves, I can't swim my way out of here, I can't jump on another boat called religion. If you would call out to him, he will save you. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. There is only one Savior, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, for your strength in the storm. Lord, our lives are not promised peace, but we are promised that we serve a God who is peace, who will give peace, a peace that passes all understanding. A peace that could wade out into the most difficult circumstances of life with complete faith and trust. Lord, we're thankful for rock dwellers that are amongst us who have been already such great examples of trust in the storm. Lord, may we even learn from their example as they follow the word. Lord, there may be others in this room that are building their houses upon sinking sand and the waves are coming to crash down upon them, and they feel as though their head is over underwater, Lord, may you walk out to them this morning. May they run to you, even as the instruments play. Pray this in your name. With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you stand with me as the instruments play? A well-known song, it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. As you, Have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Can you honestly say it is well with my soul today? I know where I'd go if I were to die. If you have no assurance of that, we would love to show you from Scripture how it is that you can know for sure that you are a child of God.